Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Welcome to Freedom of Species, where the radio show that brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. You just heard Sally with her show Out of the Pen. Tune in every Sunday at noon to hear a show on everything queer and pansexual. I am Davita and I will be your host today. I'd like to start by acknowledging that we're broadcasting from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I acknowledge their continuing care for country and I extend my respect to any First Nations listeners among us right now. My co-host today is Trev. Hello, Trev. Hey, hey, Davida. Yeah, I'd also like to acknowledge uh, that we're on stolen land of the Wurundjeri people and pay respects to elders and just keep in mind what that means to be working and living and doing things on land that is still actively being colonized and actively uh, dispossessing the First Nations people of this land. So it's, um, it's important to keep in mind in what we do. Today we're bringing you a show on one of Melbourne's iconic animals, the grey-headed flying fox. Joining us are our very special guests Doug Gimsey and Heather Kiley. Doug is an award-winning photojournalist and Heather is an award-winning media graphic artist. A year ago they published the book Life Upside Down, a kid's book on Australia's grey-headed flying fox. Welcome to the show, Doug and Heather. Hi, thanks for having us. Thanks, Davida. We're really excited to have you today. Oh, thanks for giving us a chance to talk all things grey-headed flying foxes. Yeah, it should be great. Before we talk about the, the book and the flying foxes in Australia, um, we'd love to get to know you a bit more and your journey into advocacy for the non-human animals. Sure. Well, I, I, I um, show my age. I graduated in 19, mumble, mumble, 83, um, as a zoologist. Mm. So I've, I've always been a, a big animal person ever since I saw David Attenborough's serious life on earth so my my mm. passion and love and interest in the natural world has, has really really been since i was you know before i did year 12 for me mm. so it hasn't, hasn't been much of a journey i've been there most of my life and i guess from childhood i remember feeling a lot of empathy for animals and maybe that had a bit to do with books i read or things i saw movies or tv series I remember reading a book once called The Yearling about a little boy who desperately wanted to look after an orphaned fawn. Oh. It was set in the southern United States, I think, and it was just a beautiful story about this little kid who just really wanted to protect and care for this abandoned animal. So lots of things like that, I think, shaped how I feel about animals. And then throughout my life I've gone to a lot of national parks, done a lot of international travel and mm. always been interested in what animals are there. I wanted to know what species I was looking at. Mm. Mm. 
And has there been a specific animal that has left an impression on you during those journeys, Heather, that you can remember? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the first time I went to Yellowstone National Park, I remember seeing wolves because it was around the time that they first reintroduced wolves back into Yellowstone National mm, Park. Yeah. And since then, there's been an amazing transformation of the landscape in the park, which is just incredible because they were missing their apex predator. Um, but also, it's it's a very uh, tough story to be acquainted with because They're not popular and mm. they are still hunted and mm. persecuted by landholders in the area. And they're just the most magnificent animals to watch. And we saw them just a few years back on another trip to Yellowstone and saw them out there just doing what wolves do. And it was just spine tingling experience. Mm. Really beautiful. And and Doug, are you able to sort of see how your advocacy has changed throughout your life for animals? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I, I did my zoology degree, but I stepped out of zoology and, and wildlife for 20, 25 years. Um, and, and I guess I was more of a conservationist uh, to start with um, in the early 2000s. Um, but when I re-picked the camera up in 2012, 13, I, I guess a big changing moment for me was realising that most conservation issues, uh, animal welfare issues, when I was on Kangaroo Island uh, with Heather on, on a holiday and we saw a kangaroo that had been hit by a car and hadn't been killed and it was trying to pull itself off the road oh. with two broken legs. And finding out and doing research, I found out that at least 50% of animals that are hit by cars don't die straight away and they will mm. either go off to die these slow, painful deaths or they will uh, live maimed. And for me, mm. that was the first point where I started thinking about that conservation issues that I care deeply about are also animal welfare issues. And, of course, we had the bushfires with three billion animals burnt to death. I was prepared for the bushfires in as much as I got all my fire equipment, got my media license, got everything, because I guess I was a little bit frustrated that we always reported bushfires in hectares burnt or hectares lost And you don't lose forest, it burns down. And mm. it was always talked in these mathematical plantation measurements versus in the last bushfire, we actually started to talk about animals burning to death. And I think that was a, a really important change in frames yeah. as well because it starts talking about the suffering that happens. Mm. So I think my journey is, has been from a, a conservationist first And, and then more to a um, an animal welfare advocate. And you'll see from virtually every photo I take, um, there's always an animal welfare theme, mm. uh, which you know, you'll see when, you, when we talk about the book as well. Yeah. Mm. yeah. That's actually a really good follow-on to the next question I had, which was, um, yeah, if you were interested to say a bit about your journey on towards being more veg or vegetarian or moving towards vegan, and I guess, yeah, just what's what's been your journey so far or where are you at with that? I think we started eliminating pork from our diet first because we came to understand a little bit more about pigs and how intelligent they are, how playful they are. When you start to take notice of an animal's personality and character and connect with it a little bit more, it's it's you, there's no choice but to say, I'm sorry, I can't. I, 
I'm not going to eat that. I just want you to have fun running around in a paddock. (laughs) So, and I think there's been some wonderful campaigns about that awareness, about the value of animals in their own right as well. I remember that lovely campaign that ran a couple of years ago about chickens. And there was some lovely video of comedians talking about chickens as the ladies and they had these beautiful chickens tucked under their arms and they were cuddling them and really just giving them the kind of respect that, of course, they deserve. They're, a, a, you know, a lovely, warm-blooded, breathing animal and why shouldn't they just live their life without us breeding them in the millions so that we can cut them up and eat them every day? It's kind of hideous. Mm. For me, um, grew up on a meat diet, uh, European parents, um, and didn't really think about it. There was a, there was a um, something I was having a chat to Jerry MacArthur about. It wasn't even a cognitive dissonance. And the reason I say that was because to have a cognitive dissonance, you need to think about the issue and then be conflicted. Mm. And I never thought about the issue, so I didn't have any conflicts. Yep. And as I started to move on into the space, I started to feel more conflicted. And, you know, a, a classic is, and I've spoken to people who've watched my octopus teacher, a lot of people don't eat octopus anymore yeah. because there's suddenly cognitive dissonance. And that's absolutely true. I spoke to Pippa Ehrlich um, via text, who was one of the producers of it, and you know, virtually all the crew went off octopus during the filming wow. of that because there's a cognitive dissonance. And then um, as we started to learn more, we sort of moved away from sentient animals and then eventually uh, knowing Joanne MacArthur, who has uh, published Hidden and is a very strong animal advocate, I, I couldn't face Joanne and not be a vegetarian. So that was a both, um, and I started, just started thinking about it. What's my rationale for not being one? And that's when I had a huge cognitive dissonance where I couldn't justify even thinking, I'm not thinking about it, I'm not knowing about it. So I was taking that time to reflect and not ignore. Um, that drove drove me to be a vegetarian because I actually stopped and thought about it. I always cared about animals, which I know it's a little bit sounds hypocritical, but I never thought about it when I did my purchasing decisions. Yeah, but everyone's been there. Everyone's everyone's gone through that process um, or some people are still in that process and there's nothing wrong with that because, as you say, like it's it's not even a cognitive dissonance when you've never thought about it before and you've just been brought up as that's normal. So it's, it is something that takes something to spark and and make you question it and so the moral of the story is joanne MacArthur needs to do more interviews <laughs> so that more people will question no, basically she needs to interview every individual <laughs> planet. yeah and how did the flying foxes came onto your path i studied them for one of the subjects that i did at uni i went back to uni a few years back and uh did conservation and wildlife biology at deakin mm-hmm. Um, In one of my subjects, um, which was animal behaviour, I was down at the colony at Yarra Bend watching these flying foxes for a few days, um, just monitoring what kind of little behaviours they were exhibiting from minute to minute. Um, So I really got to have a close look at them and really get to know them. And it was extraordinary to just watch them and watch, watch what they do, how they interact with each other, how they look after their babies. It was really incredible to get to know them more intimately and Mm. at one point I think I dragged Doug down there with me and (laughs) I think the first time he came with me he actually didn't even get out of the car. (laughs) (laughs) It was a bit embarrassing. Well I I wasn't interested I was doing stuff on the 
on the laptop. So I didn't. I literally did not get out of the car. And then the next time, um, I got out of the car and I, I took an, I took an image, which was it was a it was a solid image, and National Geographic ran it um, online, and then. I thought, well, what am I also going to do with the image? So I did a bit of a Google and thought, well, I'll just give it to a, a wildlife shelter. And I discovered Fly By Night Bat Clinic and Tams and Hogarth. And I said, would you like it? You know, Matt Geo overrun it. And then she said, sure. And then I got to know Tamsin. And then I visited, Heather and I visited uh, Tamsin and then started taking photos of her uh, greater flying foxes in care and then started to learn a lot more about them and the threats they were under and the stresses they have. And I think from that, a whole story in my mind developed. And again, as a photojournalist, greater flying foxes are really interesting. Um, and visually, they're really interesting as well. A, a lot of animals, and I've done platypuses, and I've had pieces published by National Geographic, but basically a platypus, unless you see it in its burrow, it's swimming above the water, scratching above the water, or swimming underneath the water. And that's about as visually rich as you normally get. Although, all photos of platypuses are wonderful. Whereas flying foxes, you start looking at them and you go, well, they carry the young when they fly, they hang upside down, they use their wings as raincoats, they do these high-speed belly dips, they fan themselves to cool down, they've got these magnificent tendons on their hands. And so this is suddenly incredibly rich story that they have. They fly out over Melbourne, you know, 50,000, mm. 70,000 of them flying out over Melbourne for dinner. So you get this incredibly rich visual story and being a, a, a visual storyteller i just looked at them and went wow they're they one of the the best species we have in melbourne to, to photograph so I, I got involved as a as a, a, a visual storyteller yeah. really and and maybe yeah a question to both of you like were you sort of surprised about the presence of the bats like oh i didn't know there were bats here or um this is the first time I hear of them. Like, could you could you tell us a bit more about how that process went from getting acquainted with with the flying foxes? Yeah, it's uh, interesting because I was aware of them around the time that people were trying to move them on from the botanic gardens. I don't know if you were aware of of that. I can't remember how many years ago it was now, but um, there was some anxiety about the fact that they were damaging old trees in the botanic gardens. And I think, to be honest, some people, you know, they still do think that they're noisy and smelly. Yeah. Um, so when they moved them away from the botanic gardens, I wasn't really even sure where they ended up. And it turns out they ended up in a place that is different to what the, the original proposal was. Mm. So they found a new home themselves in the current spot along the Yarra and I, I really didn't realise how many there would be. It's quite a spectacular thing to arrive there and look at how far the colony stretches up and down both sides of the river, mm. listen to them chattering to each other. Um, it, it's, a, it's a really immersive experience because you feel like you just walk into this bat bubble. It's <laughs> really incredible. So it was very surprising to see the number of them. But, but also looking at their behaviour was really surprising as well because they're really, you can see the mammal in them and you don't think about bats as mammals, which, of course, they are. They're a flying mammal, which is even more extraordinary. But when you watch them interacting, it's, it's very mammal-like behaviour, the way that they, they bicker with each other <laughs> about roost spots and, 
cuddle their babies and um, they're like flying puppies. Mm. It's so easy to, to get emotionally invested in them. It's a really nice thing to, to draw those sort of parallels with other more familiar animals because people are not familiar with flying foxes. And I totally understand why when we normally see them, they're flying over our heads quite a distance away or they're up in a tree. It's hard to see them close up. And until mm. you see them close up, you don't really make the same connection with them. They, they look a little foreign, I guess, and unfamiliar. Yeah. 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 And... And by now, the the Yarabend roost must be so so familiar to you, um, especially Doug, because your pictures are are featured there and also across the rest of the state, if I'm correct. Um, yeah, they are. It's it's um, it's been great. I worked with Stephen Brand, who was the park ranger there, to to do the signs and work with with some of the copy as well, mm. which was which was great. And I think to Heather's point, I think where my photography and any wildlife photographer's um, photography is beneficial, you get to see them close up. And unless you go there with binoculars, you don't get to see their dignity and, and see them intimately and just go, wow, you know, they're, they're magnificent. So I think that's one of the benefits of, of photography. But uh, one of the benefits of having the signs up there as well, people can yeah. stop and, and see the, the, the mum carrying the baby flying out, mm. which is great because I think – when you see that, I've had a lot of people see that image and go, wow, they carry their young, they're a mammal, and it's, it's, that's when the penny drops mm. that they're a mammal um, you know, when, it, when they, they see that image. Yeah, yeah, that's a fantastic image. And I'd urge every listener to have a look at the at the roost as far as they haven't done that already. Let's take a break first before we um, talk more about the flying fox situation and the issues they face and why they need attention. So, um, yeah, can you introduce the first song to us? We chose I'll Stand By You because it's just a beautiful song about empathy and looking after each other. Perfect. I'll stand by you by the pretenders. Oh, why you look so sad? The tears are in your eyes. Come on and come to me. Shame to cry. Let me see you through. Cause I've seen the dark side too. When the night falls on you, you don't know what to do. Nothing you confess could make me love you less. I'll stand by you. I'll stand by you.
Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Step up and get the jab to step out for all things fab. For random chances, dances and cheeky glances. For rainbow communities, sports, arts and families. Because every step we take from here will bring our communities closer to stepping out. Victoria's LGBTIQ plus community organisations are behind you and are here to help. So let's step up, get vaxxed and step out. To find a rainbow friendly clinic near you, visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au forward slash LGBTIQ. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Freedom of Species. We're here with Doug and Heather talking about bats and the kids' book that they've written about the grey-headed flying fox in Australia. So I was wondering if you could introduce a bit more about the situation of the flying foxes and why do they need attention? Flying foxes have received some really terrible attention, uh, particularly over the last couple of years. I think that's probably been the worst publicity they've ever had in their existence. But still, wherever they make a colony, people tend not to like it. Mm. And there's a lot of people make a lot of noise about it. It might be just a few people in a particular area that make a lot of noise about the fact that they don't want the flying fox colony nearby. And it's, it's, it's a tough one because people often say things like, oh, there's too many flying foxes. But I think the perception is a little bit warped because flying foxes like to hang out together. Mm. So when people see flying foxes, they're generally in a big group. So people have a little bit of a, uh, I guess, a, a, a inflated idea about the number of flying foxes we have their population has declined by 90% since European colonisation. We used to have so many more of them. So it's really important that we look after the ones that we have left and to help people get to know them. They're difficult to get to know. So the best way we thought we could do that was to, to show people up close what a flying fox is and get, you help them get to know them a little bit better. Can I just ask on that question, is there any slightly good news or silver lining, like since they've been rehomed to Yarra Bend, have their numbers increased at all, or is it still just dropping sort of fairly consistently decade on decade? Uh, or numbers, n- numbers fluctuate. Uh, yeah, the, the, the colony uh, Yarra Bend is a dynamic colony, so it'll drop to 5,000 over winter, go up to 50, 60, 70,000 in summer. We should really view the flying fox or the grey-headed flying fox population as a single population that moves up and down the east coast like grey nomads Mm. and during the winter they'll move up to where it's warm and during the summer they'll come down so a specific colony it's hard to say but they've settled to about 
10% of what the population was pre-European uh, colonisation. But, you know, the stresses they're under now are heat stress events. Mm. Um, 10% of the grey-headeds died two years ago uh, during a three-day period, Yarra Bend. If you look at other flying foxes, like the spectacle flying foxes up north, 30% of the whole population died in a couple of weeks due to climate change-driven heat stress events. So there are those broad events. The bushfires destroyed their habitats or a lot of their, their habitats. And then, of course, we've got the, the local of, uh, impacts such as inappropriate fruit tree netting, which luckily is being banned in Victoria now, and also barbed wire can be um, awful on them, and then electrocution by power lines. So, you know, there's some good things happening that the inappropriate fruit tree netting has been banned, but generally the big the big kickers are climate change and habitat destruction. Yeah. You know, we try and knock them out of their homes and if we can't knock them out, we'll destroy their homes and we'll put up a building. And you know, it's just not for them, it's for all species. Mm. And you mentioned a, a really big win, the inappropriate fruit tree netting. Could you tell us a bit about that that campaign to make the use of wildlife unsafe netting illegal in Victoria? Yeah, that was that was driven by a gentleman named Lawrence Pope, who was a very large, wonderful animal advocate who wrote a book called A Touch of Pity, mm -hmm. and he's president of the Friends of Bats and Bushkid and the Arab Bend. And Lawrence has been pushing for many years to have inappropriate fruit tree netting banned primarily because he loves flying foxes, but, of course, there's a positive spin-off to other animals. And that process took a couple of years. Mm. Um, we had a win as well with eBay because whilst it's only banned in Victoria, eBay agreed to not allow it to be sold on eBay full stop. Oh, wow. Which is, which is great. Oh, yeah. um, but the challenge is people will still put up inappropriate fruit tree netting for sale and market differently. Mm. So they sort of try and sneak it through. And so, you know, you lodge a complaint with eBay and they'll, they'll correct it. But it, it's great for bats and a lot of other wildlife because now certain types of fruit tree netting is illegal to be sold and illegal to be used from September 1st. So it's been a, a long time coming and it, it really has been mainly Lawrence Pope mm -hmm. and his team. Yeah. For listeners, inappropriate netting is netting that has a bigger aperture, aperture? As then aperture, um, then the, the, the simple way to think of it: if you can put your little finger through the hole, it's too big. Mm. Yeah, because they get caught up in it. It sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but if it's small, sorry, if it's large, they can get limbs caught, pushed through and caught through. But if it's less than five mils square, that's wildlife safe. If it's a bright color. If you can as well, because they can see it, of course. And mm -hmm. single filament is really bad as well. But the main thing is the smaller the mesh, the better. What's, um, this might just be my ignorance, what's single filament? Think of fishing wire as a single filament. If so, if you had a mesh made out of these uh, garroting type single filaments, whereas if it's uh, a bit more like a rope thread where it's, it's, it's a, well, like a twine, That's uh, yeah, less garroting, I guess, is you know causes less damage. I mean, Lawrence, Lawrence used to call that stuff the slice and dice because that thin line, if you get caught, mm. it just slices through. Yeah, and something you mentioned about the color of the netting is really interesting. You know, if it's a bright, for example, white color, flying foxes who feed on nectar and pollen and fruits are able to see it better. It may be counterintuitive for people who 
think that they might not see as well in the night. How is flying foxes sight at night? It's actually very good. I think sometimes people confuse the way that flying foxes see with the way that other bats navigate. Yeah. Smaller micro bats navigate using echolocation, so they don't have good eyesight at all. But flying foxes, because they're out looking for pollen and also smelling uh, flowering blossoms as well, their eyesight and their smell is really super strong sense. So they see incredibly well at night. So the looking for a white bit of netting or The other people, the other thing that we recommend people do is also on barbed wire is to put white tagging or something like that on barbed wire or paint it white because that makes it more easy for them to see too. Mm. But there are sights better than cats at night. Wow. So they, they, they have really great night vision. And if you think about it, they're flying over at 40 kilometers an hour at 400 meters looking for a, a flowering gum or a... a, a <laughs> some type of fruiting tree, and they both the smell, but they need to be able to, to sight it as well. Yeah, yeah, so fascinating, so great. Awesome animals. Um, I suggest we take a really quick break with another song before we talk about your book. Sure. What is the next song you'd like to play? The next song we chose was Wild Wild Life by Talking Heads.
20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcast. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, a lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. Wondering how you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. Welcome back, listeners, to Freedom of Species. We're here with Doug and Heather to talk about their kids' book on flying foxes for Aussie kids. So you've made a beautiful book on um, the grey-headed flying fox in Australia. And yeah, can you tell us a bit about the book? Why, how the idea first came to you? Yeah, absolutely. The reason we put the book together was that we're just really aware that kids' values are set by about the age of 11, mm. and we wanted the next generation to fall in love with wildlife. As a, um, a middle-aged person, I look at my generation with a bit of dismay and a bit of embarrassment, and I know how hard it is for people's values and attitudes and beliefs to be changed, and that's mm. just how it is. But we thought if we can get children to fall in love with grey-headed flying foxes, at least if we look at the, the long strategy that will flow through to future generations. So we thought, okay, well, let's do a kid's book. What's the age group? Well, if values and attitudes are set by about the age of 11, let's make it for kids under 11. And so it was really strategic that way. We also realised that not everyone speaks English or speaks English well, so we wanted to make it uh, visually rich and also make it a book that hopefully parents would read to their kids so that would effectively get the parents to learn about flying foxes as well. So about mm. uh, two years ago, Heather and I went down the coast and we sat down with a big, huge A1 piece of paper and started to, to map out the story of why flying foxes are so fantastic to why they're under threat to what you can do to help them. Because for me, both in photography and everything, 
there's no use getting people to care about something and fall in love with something unless you can give them some simple things to do locally to make a difference. So the book is effectively in three parts, although it's pretty seamless. Um, but as I said, it takes them on the journey of why they're fantastic, why you should fall in love with them, why they're under threat, and simple things kids can do to make a difference. This might be too on the spot, but I know Davida um, sometimes likes to ask people to read a section from their book. Do you have a copy and would you like to read a little excerpt from the book? Yeah. Um, Is there anything, any particular part that you're interested in? Whatever you think is a nice part. Just the first three pages, maybe. Okay. Grey-headed flying foxes are found only in Australia. They are a type of mega bat, which means large bat. Like us, they are mammals with hair and warm blood. Their arms, hands and skin form wings. Can you see their long fingers? Their wingspan can be up to one metre from tip to tip. This helps the flying fox fly far and fast. Flying foxes are also known as fruit bats. They love to eat fruit and nectar. Can you see this one's pink tongue? Flying foxes have a great sense of smell and excellent eyesight. This helps them find food at night as they fly over the treetops. Wonderful. Thank you. Mm. She's a great great reader, isn't she? Yeah, and and Heather, with your experience with your studies and the flying foxes, um, how did you use your knowledge to, to, to help make this book? I think it's really just about observing them and looking at all the amazing little things they do and then being able to put that in really simple terms. It's actually when you try writing things quite clearly and simply for a a kid audience, it's actually tricky. (laughs) So, yeah, it was really just a, a matter of using our own experience, observing the flying foxes and then marrying those observations with Doug's amazing photographs and then figuring out how we can best tell this story really simply and really clearly so that that kids will understand it well. I think Heather's being a little bit humble as well. I mean, she's she's an award-winning graphic designer and her honours degree is in environmental communication and psychology at Deakin. So she's got the comm side and I've got the photo side. So I think also working together, it was just a a perfect match where we've got photos, got an expert communicator, got a, uh, an expert graphic designer. It sort of lays itself out pretty well, we thought, to do a, <laughs> uh, to do a children's book. But uh, the communication was tough. I mean, you, you mentioned in the book climate change and then you go, well, look, I need to define climate. And then you sort of go weather. Well, hang on, I need to define weather. And it's that real reductive <laughs> exercise where you think, what would a five-year-old understand? And um, that, was, that was really a good experience as well. To, you know, you start using words that we assume people understand and we don't. Heather's honest thesis looked at the uh, term biodiversity and I'll let her talk through, through that, but that was just fascinating. Yes, it was. It seems like such a familiar term for people uh, studying conservation and, and wildlife at university and we all get very comfortable with it. But when you actually turn around and ask other people in the community who are busy doing lots of other things with their life, a, a huge number of people had absolutely no idea what it means. Close to 50% of the people that I surveyed didn't know what it meant and they actively wrote 
things like, I'm sorry, I've never seen this term before. I don't know what this word means. And that was so clear to me that still a lot of people really don't don't understand what's meant by those words and that perhaps other terms like natural diversity, uh, species richness, things like that might resonate with a greater number of people in the population. And I think um, what you mentioned just before, the explain like explain it to a five-year-old, there's actually, I don't know if you've heard, like an internet sort of speak meme type phrase called ELI5, which stands for explain like I'm five. Right. And people will normally say it because they feel like they're a bit of a, like a novice in a subject and they don't know anything and they want someone like they, they get lost in the explanation and they say to someone, ELI5, can you explain that like I'm mm. five years old? Um, but it actually can become a really valuable advocacy technique, um, not maybe directly at five-year-old level, but to be able to reduce um, concepts and terms down to a more everyday language style, it can, it can sometimes actually hit people harder than using those technically correct jargon words, probably because they're just not as familiar with what they really mean and it doesn't resonate with, with people. And that's one of the real challenges with scientists. They uh, use technical terms. Um, and that's been one of the challenges, I think, with with climate change and global warming and when you start using things like anthropogenic change and people go, what the hell? And they, they switch off. So we, we do need to simplify and make it clear for everybody. And, again, it assumes even using, explaining it like I'm um, five, assumes English is your first or second language. That's why... Images are really, really powerful as well. I mean, words are super powerful and they frame it and you need to use them to explain things, but images cut across language, they cut across culture, they basically show it how it is. I think it's a really interesting um, point, actually. I think that sometimes when people are trying to communicate something complex to do with the environment or, or anything really, sometimes marketing and communications people are worried that they're that if they say something simply that they're talking down to their audience. And having worked for a couple of um, NGOs now and wanting to communicate to people who potentially want to support conservation work, there was sometimes a little bit of tension between marketing and comms people and the people like me who were the ones talking to potential supporters because we were always trying to make it simple for people and we would often say to marketers it's not it's not insulting to put it in simple terms these people they're really busy <laughs> and so so we would, we just want to say it in five sentences but they're super busy people so the more succinct you can be about your message the more likely it is that you're going to cut through whatever else is going on in their their busy day. And what is something very simple about flying foxes that you felt like you had to share with kids that had to be part of the book? How long have you got? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, for many, this is not a term I'd use with kids, but they're keystone species. Basically, Mm. if flying foxes become extinct, they're so vital for the distribution of seed and pollen all up and down the coast, we will have forests go extinct. And from that, all the animals in the forest. So they're very important for the health of our forests would be a key message. Um, They're mammals would be a key message. 
to kids and they're really, really cool. <laughs> when they do all these cool things, they hang upside down, they do high-speed belly dips, they carry their young, they eyesight better than cats, they um, smell kilometres with their noses, they use their wings as fans and they use their wings as raincoats. They're really cool. Yeah. And what have been the responses? Am I correct that it's already in the third press? Yeah, it, it's 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 in its third press. Third edition in the first year is great. Wow. Yeah. Um, Scholastic have done a big order, and Scholastic go to most of the schools, so it's in a lot of school libraries. Fantastic. And I, I'd make this figure up, but probably 20% of all school kids' libraries have it now, which is pretty good for a kid's book. Um, I mean, it's not Harry Potter, you know, we're not, not going to retire on it, <laughs> but um, it's great that it's in libraries, and, and for us, it's more important to be in libraries because we know it'll be seen again and again and again. And and I, I should sort of do a shout out to Australian Geographic who published it for us because they weren't making much money on it, but they wanted to do it because they fell in love with flying foxes as well. And they decided to go a, a 48-page hardback, full, high-res, gloss copy book And for under $20, that's a little bit unheard of. So they yeah, they, wow. um, they were really fantastic, and I, I should thank them for that. It took a year to find someone that I was comfortable with publishing it. So I wanted a face-to-face -face meeting with the MD of Australian Geographic to get to know they were the right people, and, of course, they are. I wanted to see their corporate social responsibility. Not only was it being printed on recycled paper, but it wasn't being made overseas in some sweatshop. And a lot of the publishers, um, maybe that's untrue, a few of the publishers I've spoken to could give the um, environmental credentials, but not the humanitarian mm. credentials. So um, they provided that and they were just good people. And as I said, they said, we want more pages and we want to print it and sell it at a lower cost but a higher quality so kids will fall in love with it. So they were so much the right people. Yeah, that's great. With the feedback for the book, did you get any individual like stories, feedback, or like any particular feedback from, from people? When we were doing the book, we sent the uh, draft out far and wide to school kids, primary school teachers, uh, other publishers, librarians. So we went through... I think 13 iterations, and that was oh, wow. to develop it, to make sure that yeah. the words and the pictures, you know, we, we had feedback from some kids, which is just incredible. Like a six-year-old goes, I don't like the font. What child, <laughs> use, what child uses the expression, I don't like the font, for heaven's sake? They said it was a bit boring. <laughs> you know, so, so as far as the development, I think it's been good because we did what all good communicators should do. We asked our customers, both from the parents who may buy it to the kids who may pick it up on the shelf. So we did that. And then we've had uh, cards sent to us saying, you know, I like, I like the book. Um, so we've had the individual feedback as well, which has been really, really nice. Yeah, we even had a beautiful video from a lady in the United States whose gorgeous little daughter was reading the book and they, she sent a lovely video of, of that. Um, oh, her, her reading the book to her daughter actually and it was just really lovely yeah so what font did you decide on <laughs> <laughs> good question I'll, I'll, I'll ask the designer <laughs> no, actually, we, had, we had one kid we had uh, for a couple of images we had thought 
bubbles, oh, uh, like, yeah. like a question thought bubble, like can you see my pink tongue? And one young child said something like that's a bit condescending. I <laughs> 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 <Okay>, what? <laughs> You're nine. <laughs> I, guess, I guess if you can use the word condescending, your literacy levels are pretty high. But, yeah, uh, <laughs> we should be listening to them. <laughs> Maybe they're one of the ones that knows the word biodiversity. <laughs> Probably <laughs> they are. <laughs> Probably. Are there, have you got any other plans or goals for the book? We'd, we'd like to um, go on more wonderful radio shows like this, of course, but like to get it overseas as well, um, not specifically the grey-headed flying foxes because they're only found in Australia, as, as, as you would know and some people would know, but I think getting people to fall in love with flying foxes that are found in many parts um, of the Southern Hemisphere and then with bats generally would be good. So we're hoping Australian Geographic will be able to get it into the overseas markets as well just to get people to learn mm. and fall in love with them because... Yeah, 30% of all mammal species around uh, are bats. And yeah. that's a lot of biodiversity, wow. even though I probably shouldn't use the word biodiversity after <laughs> what Heather said. Uh, there's the zoologist <laughs> in me. That's a lot of species richness. Um, so, uh, you know, and they're important. They are, and I think even you know, the micro bats are important for keeping insects under control. A lot of, there's a museum overseas, um, not a museum, an old library overseas that welcomes the bats in at night because it takes out the insects that nibble on the on, on the books. So, you know, <laughs> bats are super cool no matter which one. So to get people overseas to fall in love with them as well wow. would be great. And where can people in Australia uh, find your work? Uh, you can go onto the Australian Geographic website. It's also available on lots of online book-selling websites, uh, I guess bookstores might be reopening soon, so some bookstores will actually have it in stock on their shelves. But it really is available at all good bookstores, and, and it, it is Amazon to readers to Angus and Robinson to just jump in Google, life upside down, and grey-headed flying foxes, and it'll, it'll pop up. Yeah, we'll definitely put the link in the show notes that will go with the podcast version on the website of 3CR Radical Radio. Um, I'd like to thank you both so much for joining us today. It was really great to learn more about your work and discuss the beautiful kids' book. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for for having us. Yeah, and the opportunity to hopefully get people interested and fall in love with flying foxes. And to go and visit the colony, it's it's such an amazing, amazing experience. I think, as you said right at the beginning, um, Devita, it is iconically Melbourne, I think, uh, to have this amazing colony of animals right here, so close to the city. Yeah, mm. yeah one in Yarra Bend Park and one in Dufton, if I'm correct. Uh, I think there's one in Dufton. I mean, look, all, all around, you know, there, there's a, a colony in Geelong, if you head out that way, Bairnsdale. As well, mm. uh, Mafra, Sale. There are colonies all around if you look oh, for wow. them. Yeah. So, Freedom of Species will be back next week on Sunday at 1 pm, and we'll see you then. And Doug and Heather, could you send us off with the last song that you've chosen for this show? So, we're finishing up today with a fantastic song by the Triffids called Wide Open Road. It's just a beautiful, iconic Australian anthem. It just makes me think about everything Australian and Australian landscapes as well. 
Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.